Anyway, if you have your Bibles with you today, uh, open them back up to the book of Ephesians. We're going to keep going through this. And until we go all the way through it, we'll figure something out. I want to pick up where we left off last time. I taught and want to continue on through this wonderful epistle this week. I never even imagined how jam-packed this epistle was until I started to study it and research it. It's amazing to me how the more you dissect something, how real it becomes to you and how much is really in there. <clears throat> it's almost as if all the writings in the Bible are like an old stone tablet that has writing on it, but has been buried in the dirt for ages. No pun intended. As you dig up the hunk of rock, you see that it looks like a tablet, and you knock the dirt off of it, and you can see that there's some kind of writing on it. Then once you know that there's writing on it, you start to dust on it a little bit with your hand, and you can see that there's letters there, and it starts to make words. But it's not until you get a brush and some water and really clean it off really good that you can see exactly what the rock says. The book of Ephesians has been like that for me. I've read it through multiple times. And every time I read it through, I get an overview of what it has to teach and what it has to tell me. But as I start to really clean it, and I start to really dust it, I see the tips of each letter. I can really extract what the author has and his intentions for his audience. And I think that's important that we do that with every single within the scriptures. I've washed it well, and I'm going to try to relate to you what I believe that Yahweh has allowed me to see through his servant, Paul. I want to read verses 3 through 14 again. I've done this for the last two or three sermons that I've taught, and I think it's critical until we get through with it. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, the Bible says, Blessed be the Almighty and the Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted through Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us within the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to his riches of according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom. And understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him we were also made his inheritance, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in him, when you believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Now just kind of do a quick recap. The last time I talked, we talked about how verses 3 through 14 were one big sentence in the Greek. 252 words to be exact without a period. You can take my word for it, or you can count them. It doesn't matter to me. But they're all there, believe me. I counted them dot by dot by dot because I wanted to know exactly how many words you could put into a sentence. I couldn't believe that there was 252 words in one sentence with no period. I thought to myself, I said, Self, your English teacher in the ninth grade would have given you an F for fantastic if you would have done that in English class. Not really, that F would stand for fail, I'm sure. But really, in the English language, that's completely unheard of. 
And we don't do that. We couldn't do that. However, I believe Paul is just so overwhelmed right here that he just can't stop. And so we talked about that last time. We also talked about Yahweh's riches and how he bestows those spiritual riches upon us. And we talked about verses 3 through 6 in this big old long sentence and how those verses pertain to Yahweh's sovereignty and his sovereign choice and the salvation of man. If you remember, I ask all of you to do the unthinkable thing. I ask you to write in your Bible. I ask you to make brackets around verses 3 through 6, verses 7 through 10, and verses 11 through 14 in order to separate the sentences or separate this sentence in categories or topics that are mentioned within the sentence. Verses 3 through 6 are a reference to the doctrine of election, which I think, which I think we went over thoroughly. Verses 7 through 10 are a reference to redemption, which we will discuss tonight. And verses 11 through 14 reference our inheritance, which we will get to the next time I teach. So those are all your subheadings written out by your brackets, if you did, did what we did last time. Election, redemption, and inheritance. So tonight's topic is in the second bracket in the sentences. In, this, in the sentence, verse 7 through 10, the subject of redemption. And we'll read verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Let's stop right there for a second. The hymn here is in the reference of the Beloved. Remember last time we talked about who the Beloved was. We talked about the person of Christ, and we concluded that it was Christ. I mentioned Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. It says, This is my Beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. I also mentioned Matthew chapter 17 and verse 5, when Yahweh speaks to Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he tells them, Listen to him, speaking of his Son. He says, that he is his beloved son, he takes delight in him. So the beloved in verse 6 is a reference to Christ, the son of Yahweh. So if we just follow the pronouns down into verse 7, it says in him, and that him in verse 7 is also the beloved son who is Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. His here is also a reference to Christ. We know that Christ shed his blood for our sins, right? Romans chapter 3, verse 25, Romans 5, verse 9, 1 John 1, verse 7, and Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. All of these scriptures speak of Christ shedding his blood for our sins. This is found throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament alike. So the him and the his are both references to Christ, and Paul says we have redemption through his blood. Let's talk about that word redemption a little bit. Webster's defines the word redemption as the action of regaining possession of something in exchange for payment or clearing a debt. Let me give you a theological definition of the word redemption. This is what John MacArthur says. Redemption is an act of the Almighty by which he himself pays as a ransom the price for sin which has outraged his holiness. That's powerful to me. But basically, redemption is the, the deliverance by payment of a price. There are two words used in the Greek for redemption that I'm aware of. The first is agorazo, which means to buy out of the marketplace. The word agor means marketplace. That's the root word of agorazo, and it means marketplace. So, so you'd go to the marketplace, and you would buy something in old times, and this is the word that would, that would be used to describe you buying something or paying for something to make it yours. And just like Webster said, you gain possession of something by paying a price for it. That's agorazo. The other Greek word that is used for redemption is the word lutrao, or apolutrosis. And it means to pay a price to free somebody from bondage. That's the word that is used here 
in the text that we're reading today in Ephesians. In the days of the Roman Empire, they had, they had slaves. It wasn't uncommon for people to go and buy slaves. They sold people just like they sold animals. So let's just say you were in need of a couple good slaves to help you work in your vineyard or hired hands or however you want to say it. They still were slaves. You needed a couple of them to help you work in your vineyard. You could go to the market, marketplace and purchase these people at a local sale. However, let's say that you cared for one of these slaves that you purchased in a special way and you wanted to set that slave free. You could do that also. You'd be allowed to buy him and then set him free from his bondage. The, the slavery that he's into you, once you've bought that slave, you own him, he's, he's enslaved to you, you're then allowed to set that slave free if you would like. That's lutrao, to buy someone to set him free. So in verse 7 it says this, In him we have redemption, or apolutrosis, meaning we have been bought, redeemed, and set free. What are we enslaved to? It says we've been bought and set free, we've been redeemed, but from what? Now I know maybe that's elementary for a lot of people in here, but for a lot of people it may not be. So let me explain. In Romans chapter 3, Paul puts together a chain of quotes from the Old Testament, mainly the Psalms, but he starts in verse 10 and he says this. He said, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks Yahweh. All have turned away. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. The viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of Elohim before their eyes. Now Paul goes from verses 10 through 18 telling how wicked all Yahweh's creation is. In both Judai and in those of the nations is what verse 9 says. All are under sin. So then what are we enslaved to? Sin. Sin is what we're enslaved to. Romans 6, verse 16, it says this, Do you not know that if you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? John chapter 8, and verse 34, it says, I assure you, this is, this is the Messiah speaking, I assure you everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. All right, if you don't know by now, you're about to know. First John chapter 3 and verse 4 says, Everyone who commits sin breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of the law. Now, we just read what Paul said in Romans 3. There's no one righteous, not one. In other words, all are sinners. We have all broken the law. We are all in debt to the law. We have sold ourselves into slavery by breaking the commandments, and therefore we are owned by sin, and we are held captive by it. So if we know that we're slaves to sin and we owe a debt to the law we broke, we must assume that there's a price to pay for our ransom or a debt to be paid in order to be set free. Stay with me for a second. So sin is our captor, right? And sin demands a price to release its victim or its slave. So what is the wage that sin demands? Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. That's what it demands. Death is the means by which the debt of sin is released. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, it says this. It says, according to the law, that's Yahweh's standard, that's Yahweh's paradigm. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. 
Sin demands a price that had to be paid. The debt, in turn, was paid by the shedding of, of blood, and that is what Yeshua did. He shed his blood for you and me to deliver us from the yoke of bondage of sin that we were under. Romans 6.18 says this, Having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. You were pulled from one owner to another owner. From the boss of sin to the boss of righteousness. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Isn't that wonderful? Brothers and sisters, this is redemption. This is what salvation is. We have been redeemed by the shedding of his blood, perfect blood, unblemished blood, a man without sin. You know, the Bible says no guile was found in his mouth. I think it's First Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. See, not just any blood would do. The blood of bulls and goats wouldn't do. Oh, they purified the flesh, but they couldn't cleanse the conscience. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this. It says, since the law has a shadow of the good things to come, and not the actual form of those realities, it can never perfect the worshiper by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshiper, once purified, would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in the sacrifice, there's a reminder of the sins year after year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Sure, the sacrifices of the animals had their place. They definitely had their place. They were a shadow of that which was coming. They did exactly what the law is supposed to do. They pointed us to Christ. They showed us the redemption process. They showed us the bloodshed process. They showed us what it took to wipe away sin. There's nothing wrong with what Yahweh ordained to take place. It had a purpose. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They just weren't ever intended to take away sin. Now, if the blood of the innocent animals couldn't purify the sinner's conscience, then we should definitely know that you or I can't die for one another. I can't die for, for Denise's sin, or I can't die for Vicky's sin or Arnold's sin. We're all in the same state. I'm not good enough. We're all sinners in the same state. One sinner can't die for the other. It takes something holy and blameless to shed its blood for us to make atonement for our sins and redeem that debt that we owe, and that's exactly what Christ did. Yeshua redeemed us. In him we have apolotrosis. Christ paid the ransom price for our wretched sin that outraged Yahweh's holiness. Hallelujah. Now let's look at the next part of verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We have redemption through his blood for forgiveness of our trespasses. What have we trespassed against? That would be the question. Always the law. Yahweh's law. And that's the debt he's taken away. He's given us forgiveness of our trespasses. He's not abolished the law. He's canceled the debt that we owe to the law. That's easy to just read, but I want you to think about it. That's amazing to me. Man, I was helpless until he died. I was without hope until he died. But he shed his blood for me so that I might have hope. Because of him, I've been given a new clean slate. I've been forgiven. Praise Yahweh, I've been forgiven. It's amazing to think this through, to really process. You don't have a chance if he don't die. You don't make it. You don't make it. We're still sacrificing blood of bulls and goats year after year to purify ourselves. And every year, the high priest goes into the sanctuary. He offers up the blood. And the next year, we do the exact same thing. 
And over time, the priests die. Year after year after year, they die. Not anymore. Not anymore. We have an eternal priest. I want to talk about a few Greek words again real quick. There's five to be exact. And I think this is neat. You may not, but I put it in there anyway, so let's talk about it. There are five Greek words that come from the Bible that we use that have to do with reconciliation. Remember, we're working through our second bracket here, talking about redemption. So I want to give you these Greek words to help in our understanding. And the first word, the Greek word is dikaiosis. And it means to be acquitted of a crime. And it's often translated in our Bible as justified. That's translated into the English. The second word is aphesis. And it means to cancel a debt. If two of us were arguing about something and we went to court and the one being charged was not found guilty, the debt may be canceled. Or if the man being charged was found guilty but had his debt paid, then it would be canceled. That's a thesis. And we translate this word as forgiveness in our Bible. The third word is herothesia, and it means adoption. We use this word in our Bibles to speak of sonship. If I were to go and to adopt a child, I might go through the court system to do so, to adopt this child. The word herothesia would be the Greek word that would be used to describe the process of adoption or sonship. The fourth word is ketalazo, which means reconciliation. If two people had a dispute, they would need to be reconciled with one another. Paul talks about us being reconciled to Yahweh. It's the same Greek word here, same Greek word. We translate ketalaso as reconciled. And last but not least, we have the word apolutrosis, and it means redemption. We talked about this word a few seconds ago. The price that is paid due to our outrage of Yahweh's holiness. In justification or dikaiosis, a sinner stands accused before Yahweh, but he's declared innocent. In forgiveness or aphesis, a sinner stands before Yahweh, a debtor, but his debts are canceled. In adoption, or huiothesia, a sinner stands before Yahweh, a stranger, but he's made a son. In reconciliation, or ketalaso, a sinner stands before Yahweh, an enemy, but he's declared a friend. And in redemption, or apolotrosis, a sinner stands before Yahweh, a slave, but he's, he receives his redemption, or his freedom. All of these Greek words are used to describe a part of salvation in the life of a believer. See, we all stand before Yahweh guilty, but we're declared innocent. We all stand before him owing a debt, but it's been paid. We all stand before him as strangers, but he sees us as his son. We all stand before him as enemies by breaking his holy law, but he considers us a friend. And we all stand before him as slaves, but we have been set free by the purchase price of his son's blood. Brothers and sisters, that's redemption. That's unconditional love, and that's Yahweh's love. And it brings a whole new meaning to me that he first loved us. Redemption is such an awesome and beautiful thing. Do you wonder why he even bothers to offer it? Let me give you an analogy, and then we'll we'll go on down. I think about this all the time because when you think about a legal aspect of things, I think about court systems and being tried and stuff like that, and it would scare me to death to have to be tried for something and think I'm fixing to maybe go away for life in prison or something. Let's just say I murdered a man on the street, okay? And uh, I did it out of malice. I did it with ill intent. I killed a man. And I'm standing before Yahweh, or I'm standing before a judge, and uh, we've already had the trial and the 
and the jurors have come back in and they found me guilty of murder. And I'm sorrowful. I'm sorrowful. I'm broken. I'm broken. I've I, I've done this. I've done this thing. And uh, but they're they're fixing to pass judgment on me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna undergo the death penalty. And I'm sitting there in my handcuffs, and sitting there, and the judge he's fixing to slam down the gavel and uh, sentence me to death. And about that time, the court doors fly open, and here comes my Lord walking in there, and he says. You don't kill that one. I died for him. I died for him. My my blood run down that torture state so that he don't have to perish. Now that's a that's a worldly view of something that's eternal. But that's that's the way the eternal aspect will look. When Yahweh sees us, he don't see us. He has to see his son. He can't look at you because you're wretched. You're 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 nasty to look at and you deserve justice. But instead of me sitting in that chair, he looks down at his innocent son and he says, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. And if I'm in him, then I'm his son in whom he's well pleased. He's, he stood in my place. He's redeemed me. He's bought me. I was a slave under sin and he's delivered me from that. And do you wonder why? Do you wonder why Yahweh even offers this grace to us? Well, the rest of verse 7, he says he did it all according to his grace. And according to his grace is different than by his grace. According to his grace implies that he has so much of it that it never runs out. If somebody gives if somebody gives something according to their riches, well if they're a multi 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 millionaire, according to well, we never get in we never get it to get to the bottom of it. If they give according to something that it's a lot. I mean they can they can just give according to their riches. It is a mass multitude of something that they're going to give us. Well the rest of verse seven says he did it according to his grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That is amazing to me. Just because of the riches of his grace. I don't know about you, but if a man that was not my son, a stranger to me, stole from me or something so he owed me a debt and I considered him my enemy, if he came to me wanting to hash it out, I would have a really hard time showing him grace, showing him any grace. Much less not only showing him grace, but declaring him innocent, considering his debt paid, making him my friend, considering him my own son, and redeeming him by setting him scot-free. I would have a hard time doing that. It's not hard for Yahweh. But that's exactly what he does for us. None of us deserve even one of the aspects of salvation, much less them all. But Paul says he redeemed us. These wicked people sitting in this room, those wicked people that Paul are talking about, those are the ones that that Christ died for, all according to Yahweh's grace. Not because we did anything good, because we're wretched, but according to his grace to forgive us the riches of his grace. That's so, so, so very powerful to me. Let's read verse 8. It says that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Paul's just saying here that all this that he has done, the redeeming of man through his son was according to his grace, and he did this with all his wisdom and understanding. In other words, Yahweh didn't make a mistake when he gave us grace. He had all the wisdom in the universe, and he did it based on his knowledge. His foreknowledge and his understanding of what he knows the world will be and all who are in it. Remember, election is based on this same foreknowledge. So election is obtained by grace through the wisdom of foreknowledge, of Yahweh in the same way that redemption is obtained by grace through the wisdom of foreknowledge of Yahweh. It's all part of Yahweh's master plan, his blueprint, 
and his will. Let's look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he planned in him. And this verse right here, it could be taught on by itself for several weeks. I could just, we could just camp out right here and for several weeks we could just teach sermons on it. But because I'll cover this again in, in chapter 2 as well, I'll just give you a few of my thoughts on it today. So when it says he made known to us the mystery of his will, the first question that comes to my mind is, what is the mystery? I want to know what the mystery is. Because that word mystery just catches you. I've got I to gotta figure this out. But we'll get to that in just a few minutes. Before we do, let's be sure that we know who the us is in this verse. Who is Paul referring to? I believe that the us is talking about the apostles. Paul's an apostle of Christ. He has been given a revelation about Yahweh's mystery, and he's sharing it with the saints at Ephesus. The us here is more in reference to all the apostles. I don't think it's just talking about Paul that received this, that understands this mystery. I believe it's talking about all all the apostles. But all all the people that were with Yeshua, that had been given the revelation of who Yeshua was and how he fulfilled the prophetic scriptures of old. Now, if, if that understanding is correct, if the us text here is a reference to the apostles, if that understanding is correct, I believe that it is, then Yahweh has made known to, the serv- to these servants, the apostles, the mystery of his will. That is, he has revealed what has been a mystery for a time, but now has become unveiled, and they can see what Yahweh's intentions were or what his original plan was. Now, all mysteries have a reality, every single one of them. Some are revealed. And some are not. I believe that there's mysteries in the Bible that will never be opened up in in our life or maybe even maybe on earth. And maybe it takes the, the new heavens before we ever see it. There, there are a lot of there are a lot of mysteries that belong to Yahweh. Deuteronomy chapter twenty nine, verse twenty nine says the secret things belong to Yahweh, but the revealed things that means there's some things that remain secret, some things that are revealed, but the revealed things belong to us and our children. Yahweh has unveiled a mystery here, and it's been given to the apostles to share with the believers. Again, we're going to find out what this mystery is in just a second, but it's important that we take this word by word, that we don't use our own imagination, and run away with an idea that's not intended. So rather, let's let Paul tell us what the mystery is. Let's just keep reading. Verse 9, it says, He, Yahweh, he, Yahweh, made known to us, the apostles, the mystery, that which has been hidden, of his will, Yahweh's master plan, according to his good pleasure, that's Yahweh's favor, that he planned in him. It sounds familiar, huh? We talked about this last time. According to his good pleasure, it's just like verse 5. When it says our adoption is according to his favor, like I said before, our adoption or election is by his grace and according to his will and his plan or his favor. Just like our redemption is by his grace according to his will, his plan, and his good pleasure. Favor and good pleasure mean the same thing here. Yahweh didn't have to reveal anything, but he chose to do so at a certain time according to his will, not ours, not the apostles, but his. So basically, that's what verse 9 is saying. Yahweh has kept something a mystery that was in his will for a long time, and now he's revealed it to the apostles because he wanted wanted to do it by his good pleasure. And the mystery was planned in him, the him here is Christ, Remember, we've been discussing redemption through Christ this whole time. So keep that in mind as we move on into verse 10, because this is where, this is where we're going to figure out where the mystery is. Let's read verse 10. Paul says, He planned this in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment. Let's stop right there. 
this is a timetable. We have timetables throughout the scriptures. We, we see these things. This is a timetable here. It says, for the administration of the days of fulfillment, when does the mystery become unveiled? When it was fulfilled, right? In the days of fulfillment. The mystery was administered at the death of Christ. That was the fulfillment. We've been talking about the purchasing of sinners all afternoon. We've been talking about redemption. Paul is telling us that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. He forgave our sins and canceled our debts because Yahweh was so gracious. He did it because he had all the wisdom in the world and he knew exactly what he was doing. Then he revealed to his apostles what he was doing just because he wanted to for his own good pleasure. So Yahweh had already planned his redemption in Christ before the world began through his foreknowledge and has just unveiled his secret mystery when Christ died, which are the days of fulfillment. As I read this, I wonder why. Why did Yahweh redeem the outsiders in Ephesus that Paul is talking to right here? Why is, why is Yahweh redeeming those in Ephesus? <clears throat> the answer is in the end of verse 10. He says he did this to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and on earth in him. This is where the mystery unravels. Stay with me. I'm going to try to explain it. If you know anything about who Israel is, you should know that the nation of Israel consisted of 12 tribes. These 12 tribes were descendants of Jacob Israel. They were all given land allotments and were placed on both sides of the Jordan River in what used to be Canaan land. Now as the Old Testament unfolds, these 12 tribes were separated at the, after the kingship of David and they were divided into two groups rather than one whole nation. And the two groups were referred to as the house of Israel, consisting of the ten northern tribes, and the house of Judah, consisting of the two southern tribes. These two houses become two separate kingdoms and had different kings rule over them through the years. Sometimes the house of Israel would have a righteous king and do what was honorable to Yahweh, and sometimes the house of Judah would have a righteous king and they would do what was honorable to Yahweh. However, neither house was good all the time. In fact, both houses were not good the majority of the time. But I guess the house of Israel finally made Yahweh mad enough, and one day he scattered them amongst the nations, and he removed the house of Israel from their land. However, the house of Judah remained in Jerusalem primarily, so as time went on, the house of Israel was scattered abroad, and they became lost and distant from their heritage. The, sec the two southern tribes of Judah remained around the temple, and they kept serving the Almighty, but the ten northern tribes were scattered and they lost their way. Well, because the ten northern tribes had mingled with the other nations and lived amongst them, they become viewed by the house of Judah as those other nations were viewed. They were looked on as heathens by the house of Judah. They were looked down upon, the same as the heathens, but Yahweh had a plan to reclaim, reclaim those ten tribes. He had plans to redeem them. And that's exactly what he's doing right here. Their redemption... Their redemption, the house of Israel's redemption, is the answer to the mystery. That's the mystery that was revealed to the Apostle Paul. Look over here in Ephesians chapter 2, and let's start in verse 11. I think I can help you to see this. Paul says this, So then remember that at one time you were Gentiles, or heathens, in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. The circumcised here is the southern house of Judah, and they are calling the ten tribes, the ten northern tribes, and their people, 
the uncircumcised. Verse 12, it says, At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, with no hope of Yahweh in the world. Folks, they were lost. They had no hope, and they were without Yahweh. Let's look at verse 13. Keep reading. It says, But now in Christ, Yeshua, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For he is our peace. Who was brought near? Those who were far away, the scattered ten tribes of Israel, they have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It says, For he is our peace who made both groups, the group one, Israel, group two, the house of Judah, he has made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. This is what happened to the nation of Israel. They were divided. They were divided and were hostile towards one another. Back in chapter 1 and verse 10, it says that the Messiah was going to reunite all things. In other words, he's going to bring them back together again. The Messiah was the rock that would tear down the dividing wall. This was the mystery that had been hidden. As far as Judah was concerned, Israel had been divorced. They were scattered never to return to Yahweh. They knew what had happened to their brothers. They knew that they'd been scattered amongst the nations. And Judah resides in Jerusalem. They still got the temple. They still got the law. They got everything right here. And they believe that they are Yahweh's people. And they believe that the ten northern tribes have been scattered. They are no longer Yahweh's people. They've been divorced. Judah thought they were the only ones that Yahweh loved. But unbeknownst to them, Yahweh had a plan for those he had put away. It was redemption. He was going to join them back with their brothers, and the way that he would redeem them is through his son, which verse 10 tells us, to bring everything together in the Messiah, both things in heaven and things on earth. All right. Now, I believe I've given you a good biblical explanation of who the Messiah would bring back together, the northern and the southern houses to make Israel whole again. That was the idea, to put all 12 tribes back together. But I want you to notice that the end of verse 10 is calling these two things heavenly and earthly it says that the things of heaven and on the things of heaven and on earth will be brought together in Christ or in him let me explain i believe that the nation of judah are the things in heaven and the nation of israel or the scattered israelites are the things on earth that's the con- that is the context that is proven if you continue to read through the book of Ephesians. If you keep reading this book through the book of Ephesians, I believe that's what you're going to come up with. Like we just read in chapter 2. So the mystery of his will that he planned for his good pleasure was to bring everyone together, both things in heaven, the southern house of Judah, and things on earth, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And I'm not the only one that thinks like this. I thought it was kind of weird for a minute when I kept reading and I kept studying the context and I kept saying this right here, whatever it says right here, both things in heaven and things on earth have to be lining up with whatever he's bringing back together. We've got to figure out what it is that he's tying back together. What is he bringing together? What's he closing the gap with? Christ is, Christ is pulling something together. What is it? Things on heaven and things on earth. But right here in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that the two things that he's pulling back together are those that are called the uncircumcised by the circumcised. We know who the circumcised were. That was the house of Judah that thought that they were righteous. They referred to their brothers that were scattered amongst the ten northern tribes as the uncircumcised. And Paul says that Christ died. This was the mystery, that he would die, that he would pull both the uncircumcised and circumcised together as a whole. Well, if the circumcised and the uncircumcised are what being brought together, that's got to be what 
are the things in the heaven and the things on the earth in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. So I'm not the only one that believes this. So I'm doing a little research and I'm searching through Adam Clark's commentary and I come across this and this is what Adam Clark says. It's a pretty good, pretty good quote and I'll quote it. I quote, all, all things which are in heaven and which are on earth, this clause is variously understood. Some think by things in heaven the Jewish state is meant and by things on earth the Christian. The Jews have been long considered a divine or heavenly people. Their doctrine, their government, their constitution, both civil and ecclesiastical, were all divine or heavenly. As the power of all the heavens, Matthew 24:29, Luke 21:26, mean the Jewish rulers in church and state. It is very possible that the things which are in heaven mean the same state. And as the Gentiles were considered to have nothing divine or heavenly among them, they may be here intended by the earth out of the corruption of which they are to be gathered by the preaching of the gospel. End quote. So Adam Clark basically understands the things of heaven to be Judah and the things of earth to be the scattered nations. And that all lines up well with the rest of the chapter, chapter 2. We didn't, we didn't finish reading it, but, that, but it lines up well with it. The subheading in my Bible for chapter 2 says unity in Christ. It's verse 11 through 22. I would encourage you on your own time to go through Ephesians. Read verses 11 through 22. Compare them with chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, and see if you come up with the same thing. I don't see any other way to understand it. I've studied and studied and studied. I've, I've been studying this, this passage for probably two months, and I, I don't understand it in another way, but if somebody's got some, some kind of insight, I'd be glad to listen. But I think, I think that it makes perfect sense. So in closing today, what have we learned? First and foremost, in Christ we have redemption. We have redemption, and we have that redemption because of the riches of Yahweh's grace and because of his infinite wisdom and understanding because of his will and foreknowledge and his good pleasure. Our redemption comes through the blood of his one and only perfect son, Yeshua our Messiah. Our redemption is by the shedding of his blood, not just any blood, but perfect blood. And it was shed for our sins, for your sins, for my sins. And all this according to his will and purpose to bring Israel and Judah back together again. Praise Yahweh. Yahweh's good, guys. When we couldn't, he did. And that, brothers and sisters, that's redemption. That's, that's being bought with a price. Next time we're going to talk about an, our inheritance. Next time I teach. And by the time we get done and you see how richly blessed you are, I'm going to have to teach on humility just to get us all back down here again. But um, I'm excited. Y'all excited? Yeah. Yahweh, Father, we thank you for uh, the understanding that you give us, Father. We love you, and uh, we're so thankful for your son, Father. However we understand this, the one thing we surely can understand is that uh, you loved us enough and were gracious enough to us that you that you allowed your perfect one and only Son to die so that we may have eternal life. And Father, that's more than that's more than a mind can conceive. So Father, we give you praise, honor and glory in all things. Father, I pray that you keep us safe as we leave here today and go about our ways. I know the roads are wet. We're thankful for the rain, Father. I just pray that you'd uh, get us home safe and let us return back here next Sabbath to uh, to keep your command, to keep your Sabbath day, to uh, to join ourselves together and have a holy convocation, Father. We love you in all that you are and all that you've done for us. We ask all these things in your holy son's name. Amen.